0: Trained in psychiatry and pharmacology, Dr. Kenneth Davis became president and CEO of Mount Sinai Health System in 2003. He is in a unique position to speak about the impact of COVID-19, as many of his nurses and doctors are on the front lines of fighting it in New York. Today, he discusses how his team is managing the pressure, the financial impacts this crisis is having on hospitals, which treatments are showing early promise in patients, and where New York and the nation go from here let's listen in.
1: It's our pleasure to welcome Dr. Ken Davis. Just for the record, uh, Dr. Davis is a psychiatrist uh, by background with chair of Mount Sinai's Department of Psychiatry, so he has probably some perspectives on a range of issues and was instrumental in, 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 in helping create their N.A.H. founded Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. and And, and as well, in his role in leading the institution since 2003, led a major turnaround of Mount Sinai. Uh, with that brief introduction, I will um, begin. Where I think Dr. Levine would prefer, or Dr. Davis would prefer us um, to, to really ask questions. So I've got a couple I'd like to kick off with, maybe sure. with five to get it going. And then um, we'll um, we'll take others, but would you would you prefer to make any comments at the beginning, Doctor?
2: No, um, I'm here to answer whatever is on your mind.
1: All right, so maybe the best one to share with us is what is it like in the hospital today? Uh, what are it's the incredible?
2: Issues? It's yeah. like nothing we've ever seen.
1: Talk to us about it. Share with us.
2: Um, early on, uh, Governor Cuomo got on the phone and met us also the number of the CEOs of the major health systems. And he said, look, the epidemiological models that we have suggest that we're going to need you to add 50% more beds than you currently have in service. For the Mount Sinai health system, that meant we'd have to add 1,000 beds. And we knew a very large number of them would have to be ICU beds. So right from the start, we knew this was gonna be like nothing else we'd ever done. Where would we find the room? Where would we find the beds? Where would we find the staff? Where would we find the supplies? Um, All that had to happen very, very quickly. So what we've done is we've put beds in all kinds of places. We've doubled up in all kinds of places. We've asked people to do double shifts, triple shifts. Um, we've redeployed people because we're not doing elective surgeries. Um, we're only doing the most emergent things. So imagine you're telling a dermatologist who spent most of his career taking care of people with skin diseases that he's suddenly on a COVID team or an ophthalmologist. He's on a COVID team. Uh, but we've redeployed doctors, nurses from all over our system. So we have eight hospitals and 450 ambulatory sites imagine most of those ambulatory sites are kind of closed down now. Maybe they do 20% of the work that they used to do before. We're bringing all those doctors in, all those nurses in. So we had to restructure the staffing, restructure how they would work as a team with one or two leaders. And then a number of people who just had to be taught on the fly. Um, But you know, we're, we're starting to see now, fortunately in New York, a plateauing. Um, it looks like we are going to be able to manage with the beds that we have now, unless we hit a very surprisingly awful second wave. Um, but the hospital looks like a war zone. Um, there are beds where you never expect them to be. Staff taking care of patients that they never expected to take care of. Oh, and another issue is more deaths than you'd ever see um you know uh i get emails letters from nurses and they say something like it would be a rarity when i would have an 8 hour shift that i'd ever see a patient die i just came home and three patients died that i was taking care of i've never had anything like that i'm overwhelmed with with fear and anxiety and tears and when i come home my husband is quarantined and my 10 year old daughter is feeding him dinners through the door how am i going to get through this so it's not only like nothing we've ever seen physically visibly it's like nothing we've ever seen emotionally
1: so how do you how do you as a psychiatrist as a hospital administrator How do you help these first responders? How do we as business leaders across the country support you who are on the front lines?
2: Lots of thoughts on that. We have mental health liaisons. We put 55 mental health people, everything ranging from psychiatrists, social workers and psychologists to assigned to 30 inpatient COVID units across our eight hospitals. Their job is to initiate, conversations around the stress levels that our staff is experiencing. We also have multiple links to uh, websites where they can talk to healthcare, mental health professionals and talk about it. We've done everything we can to provide free meals. And some of those are a lot of comfort food. Um, you know, uh, Wendy's is giving us food. Uh, Famiglia Pizza is giving us food. So it makes them a little bit happy. For those people who are don't want to commute or we've brought in as per diems from far away, you're giving them hotel rooms. Um, and every day we, bring, we put out an email that is as upbeat and encouraging and rewarding to them as we can. We also give them crisis pay. Um, we've, we're have we paying them extra money for all the things that they're doing. That's not enough, because we know they're putting their lives on the line here. Um, but those are the kind of things that we try to do to diminish their concerns, their anxiety.
1: So, Dr. Davis, we, we keep seeing on the nightly news the PPE issues. Talk to us about that within your hospital. And with with your phone.
2: All right. Well, we became in our system very aggressive about getting PPE. So what I'm going to tell you what happened in the Mount Sinai health system may not be representative. However, what is representative is the following right now, among all the major health systems in New York. And we have a call three times a week. There are no major shortages of PPE. Um, Where We've been supplied adequately, so it's not a crisis. Early on, it was a big concern. Um, We had suppliers that we had been working on for some time in China. Um, At some point, China decided that they were going to essentially nationalize all the uh, PPE that was going out. We were able to get our stuff out with a lot of help from people we knew in China and relationships that we had that had been developed over a long time. We had at one point 5.5 tons of PPE sitting on a runway in Shanghai that we got out. So we're okay on PPE. But, you know, the issue that you're indirectly raising is we weren't very prepared for this as a country. We weren't stockpiled. And uh, we should have been. And we shouldn't have been scrambling around for PPE. We've seen SARS. We've seen Ebola. This has been on the National Security Council's top 10 list of threats to the country for some time. But we just weren't prepared.
1: So I know that there's another question out there. Bill Galston, one of my colleagues, um, uh, has a question. And then I have another to continue with. Bill?
3: Yes, uh, thank you, and thank you for giving us your time, which must be incredibly precious in current circumstances. We appreciate it. Uh, I actually have two questions. Question one: There was a debate on the floor of the Senate just today about the state of hospital finances uh, and and you know what sorts of stresses hospitals are likely to be under. You know, so question one, using Mount Sinai as an example. Uh, how long can you continue on this trajectory of emergency care, which presumably means a ra- drastic reduction in elective surgeries and other money-making options? Right.
2: That's question this, one. Well, let's question, answer that one first, because that's really enough. important, and then we'll go yeah. on to question two. Okay. This is a critical question for us. Um, ending elective surgeries Ending is ending many of the surgeries that provide any kind of margin in a hospital system like ours. Adding the kind of expenses that we have with the profiteering that's going on in supply chain, with the overtime that we're paying, with the crisis payments that we're making, with the per diem people that we're bringing in, is causing us to hemorrhage dollars. My colleagues in the big systems, the NYU system, the NYP system, New York Presbyterian, NYU, Mount Sinai system, Northwell system, all are estimating that their monthly losses are between three and $400 million a month. Um, how long can that last? Well, for the smaller community hospitals, if they don't get an infusion of cash quickly, they will not make payroll. And when they don't make payroll, there's a chance that their workers don't show up, they close down, those patients come to us. The hospital systems that are in a little better shape are able to say things like, in six months, we run out of cash. Um, So it's a real crisis. The first $100 billion um, that came in the first, that CARES Act just allocated 30 billion, the first 30 billion to all the hospitals in the country. They allocated based on your previous year's Medicare billings. It had nothing to do with who is taking care of COVID patients now. I had a conversation yesterday with Alex Azar about that. And he said, the next 70 billion will be a little more focused on those places that are really taking care of the most patients. That won't be enough either. There is a bill now in which there's a debate and we heard a stalemate in the Senate over finding additional $150 billion for the hospitals. This is really an existential crisis for the hospital systems. And uh, we're gonna need much more federal help and I wish this became a bipartisan, no
3: labels issue.
1: Thank you. Bill, your second question?
3: I've been I've been reading Dr. Davis that uh, Mount Sinai is among the hospitals that have developed ethically driven protocols yeah. for the allocation of critical care on ventilators and other devices if there are more claimants for critical care than there is equipment to deal with it. Right. If that is the case, could you describe as much as you can make public What those protocols look like
2: we haven't finalized any of those protocols Not at all We have been talking to our other hospitals and with the Greater New York Hospital Association about what might be standard of care if we Were short on ventilators as it turns out We're not going to be short on ventilators in New York. Good. So these decisions we're not, fortunately, going to be forced to make. The decisions that we're going to make would be like we would have to make at any time about any patient, which is, is care futile? Um, And you'd address that question in an emergency room under most circumstances. When we were worried that there would not be enough ventilators, we were contemplating what would we do? We fortunately are not going to have to do that. Thank you. I have have a question, Um, Jim Frank from Chicago. There was a fairly frightening article in today's Wall Street Journal about both the short term and long term uh, negative impact of utilization of ventilators. Could you comment on whether in general they do significantly help people or whether there is short and long term serious damage from the use of them? All right. I can't because I'm not a critical care person, but I can tell you what I've been learning from our ventilated patients. At Mount Sinai, among these 2,200 patients that we currently have with COVID, probably got about 800 um, in ICUs, and maybe 200 or 250 of those are on ventilators. Um, Of those who are on ventilators, 50%. Will leave the ventilator with no at Mount Sinai without a problem. Now, part of the problem could be what COVID did to them and what COVID did to their lungs and the rest of their body. But 50% are going to walk out and they're going to be relatively well. 20% will die on the vents. 30% will have some kind of longer-term consequence that we don't know whether whether they will recover from. They might need oxygen. Um, Whether that is a consequence of being on a vent for a prolonged time or the COVID is indistinguishable. And I'd have to refer you to um, an intensivist to really answer the question. Of what are the long-term consequences of being on a ventilator for ten or twelve or fourteen days? But suffice it to say, those people who were on those ventilators for that long wouldn't be alive if they didn't if they weren't on those ventilators.
1: And it's it's Andrew Tisch. How are you? Hi, Andrew. Uh, what, what what will be the long-term effects? Speaking as a psychiatrist and psychologist, what's going to be the long-term effects for? your frontline workers here. I I can only imagine PTSD and so much else a year from now, two years from now for the rest of their lives.
2: You said it. We are actually thinking a lot about that. Um, We're a big PTSD center. Um, Dennis Charney, Rachel Yehuda, these are world leaders in PTSD. Um, My concern like you articulated is that between depression, anxiety, sleeplessness, suicidality, substance abuse, you're gonna see a lot of it in the frontline staff. We we are now developing a program based on what we know about PTSD for what we need to do when this is over, how we'll address staff, how we can treat them. And I think it's gonna have to be a major effort because these are life-changing experiences. Dr. Davis, um, it's, um, my name is Chris Stadler. Um, first of all, thanks for all you're doing, uh, you and your team. It's uh, really inspiring for everybody to see what the healthcare professionals have been doing. Um, but uh, a question I have is whether or not, what kind of progress you think is being made on treating the disease um, and limiting its length, severity, et cetera, because I think that's going to have a big impact on the degree to which we can come out of this. If people believe they're going to be able to be treated and get through this, um, I think it helps in the restart. What what have you guys been learning? Sure. Well, the vast majority of people don't come in the hospital. And they're increasingly becoming aware of the fact that there are people who will be COVID positive who have virtually none, no symptoms. Um, So, You know, for the average person, particularly an average younger person, you know, that's not the catastrophe it can be. For older people, particularly people who have comorbidities, it's much more serious. Those comorbidities are just not immunosuppression. It's also cardiac, cardiovascular disease, hypertension. Um, So what are we learning? Um, You know, we... Are swamped with patients, and there are lots of good clinicians who are making great observations. And some of those observations are leading to therapies that we're trying. Um, you everybody's heard about the hydroxychloroquine story. Um we would be hard pressed to say that this is any kind of breakthrough therapeutic. Um, there may be some people who are getting an advance some advantage over it. We're a little skeptical. We're doing it anyway we have 10 clinical trials ongoing at various places in the disease with various interventions one of them that we're at least theoretically enthused about is we take antibodies from patients who have recovered who have high levels of antibodies and we infuse them into patients who are in their fourth or fifth day of disease um We've done the first 20. We're gonna be adding about 20 to 30 a day now. Um, And we'll have some sense of whether those people's course is improved and they don't go on to the ICU and to the ventilators. So that's a possibility. We're also seeing something else that's very interesting. We've come to a hypothesis that a lot of the lung damage is being caused by thrombotic that's like clotting events in tiny areas all over the lung. Those clotting events are being precipitated by obviously the virus causing damage along a particular pathway. So we've started to give anticoagulants to patients at a particular time in their disease course and uh, we're getting that approved um it's we'll we'll know more in a you know week or so whether that's really has a positive intervention but at least we're a little bit excited about that so we'll see whether that gives us some hope um other than that you know we're trying all the drugs that are out there um some of them make more sense than other drugs and I think that if we reconvene in a couple of weeks and we'll see in the newspapers, you know, maybe something is helpful. Here's something, though, that everyone needs to keep in mind. When I was at the beginning of my career in psychopharmacology, my mentor, who was the godfather of psychopharmacology, said to me, Ken, here are two things you should know. When there's no cure, there are a thousand treatments. And the first patients in a clinical trial always do well. So when you see in the newspaper, the drug of the day or the breakthrough of the day, be skeptical. Everybody wants to believe that they're a genius and they found a cure. Let's just wait and see. I'm hoping we'll come up with something, but time will tell.
1: One follow-up on the hydroxychloroquine. You mentioned that it may or may not be helpful, but you guys are still using it. And is that widespread? And are you seeing any damage with it? Because it's become such a political football. I mean, I really That's don't right. know about that. I just want to know, because I have a lot of friends, I'm in Chicago, who are ICU docs, and they say they're giving this stuff all over the place.
2: Yeah, we are. Uh, you got to make sure that people don't have an EKG, a cardiac abnormality called a QT prolongation which would increase their risk of sudden death from hydroxychloroquine. So we have to do that. Um, but yeah, it's being widely used. Um, there are some reports out of out of China. There was, I think, a report out of France. Uh, some say it worked. Some say it didn't work. It's not penicillin for pneumonia. I'll tell you that. But, you know, we're using it.
1: How do you see us coming out of this? I mean, it sounds like you've
2: the That's a really important question. The epidemiological models that I've been seeing have a sharp upslope and a relatively sharp downslope, but it doesn't talk about where the equilibration point is. Do we go down to, instead of our hospital admitting at the peak of this, 150 to 200 patients a day across our hospital systems, we go down to 20 patients a day through the summer, and then we bounce up again next winter,
1: oh, boy.
2: that's hardly a, you know, a great steady state. So what we don't know is if, as the model suggest, New York, for example, New York City begins to come back to some kind of normalcy in the first week in May, what is normalcy? Is it still a, some level of disease? Particularly, dem- particularly problematic in older people? Or is it really that we can go out again? Everybody can go out again. That all of us who are socially isolated and we're worried about getting this disease because of either comorbidities or our age can suddenly behave normally? Or do we still have to be very careful? We won't know that yet.
1: What what is your view in the context of that of of a, of a shift from what we're calling horizontal um, isolation in which we're isolating the entire population versus moving towards seg uh, vertical uh, isolation or in which we're isolating specific populations the elderly those with Yeah, is,
2: I think the, most of my son. The, the the big the biggest help in making that happen is going to be a widespread ability to test people's Antibodies. If you've got a big antibody response, whether you thought you had COVID or not, you're going to be fine. Um, but if you have no antibodies and you were never exposed to it because you were isolated so well, you could stay at risk. So what does that mean? It means that certain people who either were sick or had minimal symptoms and even know it, but now have antibodies, they can behave normally. They can go out. But other sectors of the population are going to have to be much more careful.
1: Well, thanks. My question, you partially answered, which is how do you see the economy opening up, in what tranches, in what sectors, and how far away are we from testing, you know, every day, everyone to help facilitate the opening of the economy?
2: um well is a little self-serving mount sinai was the first group to develop an antibody test against the spike protein in the virus which is the part that you really have to know you have antibodies against because it's the pathological portion of the virus um we're going to announce tomorrow with the approval of the fda that that test um is fda approved And we're going to be working with a number of uh, diagnostic companies to scale it up. And we may even help get help from the government to scale it up. I don't know how long it'll take to really scale that so that we can do antibody tests quickly. We'd probably be able to scale.
1: specificity on that test. Excuse me. I had heard there were some issues with specificity on the.
2: There's well, it depends on which antibody. If our test has no issue with specificity because we, Targeted the spike protein. We're measuring antibody against the spike protein. There are other tests that may not be as specific. Um, the diagnostic test is easier, probably, to scale up. And it just because of the time that it takes to do the test, even though it's automated and the line that's waiting for it, it should be less than a day to get the test back. Sometimes it's been longer, but I'd imagine months from now, it'll be widely available and it'll be available within a day of testing and you'll know whether you have the virus in you. So between the virus testing and the antibody testing, we may be able to identify people who can go back to work and start to scale up the economy again.
1: So so my question, which may have been answered because I got on late, was whether uh, some of the stuff we've been reading about Um, about the serious illnesses being a result of an overactive immune response. Um, Whether there's any thoughts about that?
2: It's clear that there are cytokine storms toward the end of the disease. Early on, you want an inflammatory response. Later on, it can be counterproductive. That's why there are drugs that are being used when you get that huge inflammatory response at the end of the disease um, that can be helpful. Um, but it's clearly not the whole answer because by the time you're at that inflammatory cytokine storm, you're in real bad shape.
1: Hi, Ray McGuire. First of all, thank you for your extraordinary leadership, especially
2: on the front lines. Question I have is: What is the reaction to there being a disproportionate impact on communities of color? Um, you know, there's hardly a disease that affects mankind or humankind in the United States that doesn't disproportionately affect lower socioeconomic classes. Whether there is a genetic component to that or not, we don't know. Um, Whether it's a result of living in closer quarters, whether it's the inability to really isolate, we just don't know. But that we're seeing this is both distressing, but not surprising. And I think it speaks to how we'll ever be able to get equity in health care across our country. Because social factors are such an important determinant of outcome in health that you can have the most brilliant therapeutics and the greatest hospitals. But, you know, if you have inadequate food, inadequate shelter, and all the other problems that are social, you just can't have great outcomes.
1: A thank you. broader social issue that I think speaks to something we've been talking a great deal about. Let me, on behalf of No Labels, simply thank you, Dr. Davis, and wish you and the hospital and your entire team of, of first responders the very best. We thank you for your heroic activities. And with
2: that Thank you. It's back. a pleasure to work with your group.
0: You just heard Dr. Davis describe a warlike atmosphere in his hospital's with beds and hallways and healthcare workers of every specialty, from dermatology to ophthalmology, joining COVID teams. With profitable elective treatments and surgeries canceled or delayed, hospitals like Mount Sinai are losing millions of dollars, even as its teams are stretched to the limit. Our frontline healthcare providers are truly doing heroic work, but as Dr. Davis explains, they desperately need more help from Washington. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break on No Labels Podcast.